Hello and welcome to Full Contact Nerd, where we talk about fiction and storytelling in all its forms. From the weird to the fantastic, horror, sci-fi, fantasy, thrillers, mysteries, anything you can ask for, we have it. I'm Chris Alvarez and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Samaya Daoud, author of Court of Lions, a Mirage novel, published or to be published August 4th, 2020 by Flatiron Books. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for having me. So first, um, of the many ideas that, that writers have, you know, including yourself, um, how did this particular idea rise up above the rest to, to get written? Um, it was really like, uh, I need, I, I wanted to write a book and I love Star Wars. Um, and, um, I am one of the few people that really <laughs> loves the prequel trilogy. Mm. Um, especially the first movie. I really love, um, the idea of a queen having a body double and, and I really, um, I think the, the year before I wrote it, I went to, um, the traveling costume exhibit that Star Wars that like Lucas, Lucasfilm had put out, um, cause it was at the Mopop in Seattle. Mm-hmm. Um, and all of the costumes had these little, like, uh, plaques that were like the costume designer pulled it from this culture in Asia or this culture in Africa or like this idea from the Ottoman empire. And there are like almost no Brown people in star Wars. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was really a, a confluence of things. And I sort of like write to where, um, whatever has the strongest pull. And this was the one that just like, I had, I had been actually like, I'd started my graduate program and I'd been struggling to write, anything to completion for a while, which was like a really scary feeling for me. And this one just sort of stuck. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I see that the series itself, it's, it's described as sort of in Amazon, it falls under like folk tales and it's described as fantasy, but it also has a space element to it. So can you talk about that a bit? Yeah. So it's, a, so I describe it as a space fantasy, uh, which like is what I think of, when I think of Star Wars, so um, something that has like a really heavy political as like political intrigue aspect, um, something that is like concerned with history, that's concerned with relationships over technology. But I am also really obsessed with the idea of like brown futurity and like what does it look like when we imagine cultures that are not Western cultures. Um, transforming and evolving and moving into the future, right? So, like, for me, it was it's really important that Mirage is a Moroccan space fantasy that that has, that imagines, like, a Moroccan culture terraforming multiple moons, right, um, and developing all of this technology and how that technology becomes embedded in a society that is allowed to hold on to its cultural, its, its, its cultural history. Mm-hmm. Um, because I get, like, I, there, I get a lot of readers who are very, like, um, oh, I don't really understand, like, why all of this old-timey stuff is still in it. Like, why are all of these old-timey clothes? And I have to be like, we're all can still dress like this. Like, this is what we still wear to, like, celebrations, mm-hmm. right? Just because you don't see it or you don't know it because you're not familiar with the culture or whatever doesn't make it any less true. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this, like, really strange idea that, like, the West has completely modernized and completely left the past behind. But we have, like, all of these antiquated traditions that don't really make any sense like four or five years ago we all watched a prince of england get married mm-hmm. like monarchy is sort of the oldest most antiquated tradition and watching a dude who basically does not have a job <laughs> spend billions of dollars on a wedding is absurd but no one really like no one would say like that's not 
like why why is that part of our or i mean you know there are criticisms obviously like why is that part of our modern landscape mm-hmm. um but the criticisms become become much more pointed because we think because the west thinks of non-western cultures as being like historically bound like none of them moved into the future mm-hmm. and so i really wanted to challenge that with this book and thinking about like imagine a world in which brown people got to develop like you know got to assert their cultural dominance and um, express themselves into the future, what traditions would they keep? The answer is most of them. And how would technology be folded into into those traditions and into that into that landscape? So what's the name of the uh, culture that, that sort of stands in for Moroccan culture in the series? Um, the Koshela is really the most uh, Moroccan adjacent one um, that's, that's pulling. My mother is Shluhi, so that's like a, a uh, an indigenous ethnic group in Morocco. And so those are the cultural traditions that I'm most familiar with and the ones that are pulling um, most heavily or that, that are pulled most heavily into the book. Mm-hmm. Now, does the book, is it a sort of an extension of Earth, you know, humanity going out into space or is it completely separate from sort of human society in your in your setting? Um, it's completely separate. So these people have never heard of Earth. Um, they don't know what an Earth is. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> Okay. So tell me more about the, um, in details without, you know, any spoilers, you know, tell me about the protagonist and more about the, the conflict that exists. Yeah. So Amani is the main character. Um, and she is an 18 year old girl who is living on Cadiz, which is the moon that's orbiting the main planet Andala. And she's living about 20 years after the conquest wave. Um, so 20 years ago, the Vathic Empire rolled in um, and conquered the moons and the planet um, and installed uh, an imperial regime. And as part of the concession of laws, the planet's reigning queen married um, the Vathic Emperor to give him control, like to give him legal control over the planet. And so Amani is living in the after of all of this. And um, her parents and her eldest brother have, have all survived the conquest wave. And on her coming of age majority night, she is kidnapped to the Imperial Palace to uh, be the body double for the Imperial Princess, who actually looks exactly like her. And so she gets pulled into the Imperial Palace politics and is sort of forced to contend with, like, the real ramifications of what the conquest is and is, is forced to answer the question, like, what can I do? in the face of colonial oppression um, and in the face of a very, very powerful empire that is uh, hell bent on our destruction. Mm-hmm. Would you, is it more, is it more action or more political or? Um, it's definitely know? more political. It's, uh, like I'm a, I'm a writer that enjoys writing um, relationships and dialogue over action montages, mm-hmm. which is just like a skill that I haven't mastered. And so, yeah, it's definitely more politically driven. There's a lot of, of intrigue. There's a lot of, um, tense relationships and tense relationship conflicts and all of the stakes are sort of bound up in the relationships that the characters have with one another. Um, yeah. So now I see, so the book is young adult and it says, you know, eight, I, or actually it said grade eight and up. And I'm just curious, you know, with this, this serious subject matter in what ways were there ways in which you had to sort of, uh, pull back like some strong concepts for the age group or, did you hold back at all in any way or? Um, I didn't really, there was like a conversation with my editors sometimes where they were like, I don't think readers will understand this, but I was a very precocious reader when I was, um, in high school. Like I read the wheel of time, Mm -hmm. um, when I was in high school in like four months, 
And so I, for me, I'm, I always assume, I always try to assume the best of the teenage reader because I was a reader at that age who really wanted to be challenged and who was bored really easily um, and didn't like to be talked down to. The other thing too is that like, I think that there's a sort of precious idea of what like the average teenager is and there are plenty of teens who have like escaped war-torn countries or lived under occupation or are living with the after effects of their parents who have lived under occupation, you know, and I don't want to write a watered down version of that experience. Like that's unfair to them and it, and if that, like if I had ever felt like I had needed to pull back on the experience of these characters in order to make it more palatable to a young audience, then it's definitely something that like I shouldn't have written. And I tried to be as emotionally honest and authentic as possible as I was writing, like to ask the hard questions and to ask what um, the experiences of this character would be like. And sometimes there was a little bit of like editorial pushback, but in the end, I think I landed in a place that, that feels emotionally real without having... To, to undermine like the actual lived realities that the book is, is pulling on. Mm-hmm. So as far as sort of the cultural um, and political aspects, was there, did you have to do any um, additional research for the book? or were you- Yeah. So I actually did a lot of, a lot of research into the years of lead, um, which are the 1960s to 1980s in Morocco. Mm-hmm. So after Morocco um, asserts its independence, there is uh, like a move to, ethnically unify the country, which is difficult because it has like many separate ethnic groups who all have their own distinct traditions, cultures, and languages. So there's like not even really like linguistic unity in Morocco, even though technically Arabic is like the the state language. Um, and so in order to force this this sort of ident- unity, unified identity, there becomes there there is a regime of Arabization, and so it like it, it's like a, a deliberate attempt by the government to wipe out ethnic difference and wipe out indigeneity as a concept, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so a lot of people were imprisoned, like a lot of poets, a lot of political writers. There's also like a socialist movement that happens during this time, and it's really it's it's like a really awful, really terrible time um, where people are like spirited away off to black fight prisons and all of this other stuff. And so I drew on that a lot in terms of thinking about what it's like living in a state where the government is deliberately trying to wipe your culture out and and pull you into pull you into the dominant cultural structure. Mm-hmm. Um, like, what does that look like? How does that feel? What are the consequences of it? And so I read a lot of like dissident magazines. A lot. I read a lot of history. Um, I read a lot of poetry that was written in the area during that era. Um, and I also like did a lot of like oral history research with like my mom who was born in the sixties and sort of lived through that, mm-hmm. um, through that movement. Yeah. I'm speaking with Samaya Daoud, author of court of lions. You can find more information on her work at samayabooks.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it. If you can, please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. Ned, did you do all this research before writing it, or was it during the writing and it affected how any plot lines or anything? It was a little bit of both. Like, um, I, so I was doing a lot of reading 
uh, like I was a grad student while I was writing the first book, and so I had access to stuff, and it was things that they were things that I was already interested in, and I had already known a little bit of it because my mother lived through um, that time period, and so I had a sense of it. And then I just, um, as I was writing, I got um, I got more concrete information that helped to fill out the book tremendously, and it and it also underwent like pretty serious revisions the first round. So like the more I read, the more I could fill out different parts of it. Mm-hmm. So it seems it. it- I would imagine it's pretty unsympathetic to the conquering regime within your book. Um, but yeah. do you have, do you have sympathetic characters within that regime? Yeah. So the most sympathetic character is Maram, um, who is the half Kushela, half Bathic daughter of the emperor, mm-hmm. um, and is slated to be the imperial heir in the first book. Um, and she's pretty sympathetic, but she's also only sympathetic because she is biracial and so her conflict um and her real difficulty is like trying to figure out if she can actually risk her skin um for her mother's people and for her basically for her family members that are her disenfranchised family members right she's 17 or 18 um the only thing that she wants in the world is to please her father and her but her father is a fascist dictator and she has a lot of trouble being able to separate those two things out um, and also understanding that like the risk of failure, like if she fails in her father's eyes, like the cost is death. Right. Mm -hmm. And so she's, she's a sympathetic character in the regime, but she's also only sympathetic because she has this conflict. And I think that um, I was talking to a friend about this. I was like, I think that if mom was just a straight up Vathic conqueror, like the conflict is not there, right. The risk that she's taking and I mean, mom's risk, is that she's already seen as lesser and as a compromise because she's biracial. Um, and so that risk becomes much, much higher for her, right? Like the expectation of failure is already there and she's already walking on thin ice. But I generally, the st- the, the stance of the book and the st- and Amani's stance, the main character stance is generally that like, if you are part of the oppressor class, you have a duty to stand up against it. And if you're not standing up against it, then you failed morally as a human being. <laughs> It's it's pretty fascinating that um, that you use um, sort of the Arabic Empire as the the conquer, you know, as as quote the 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 bad guys in the book. Um, do, are there any other fantasy books out there or that that sort of use it the same way you have, or have you approached it from an angle others really haven't before? Well, the Vathic Empire is is not Arab. I use the Moroccan the Moroccan years of lead as like a template for it because it was the closest that I could get to. It was the, it was the thing that was most interesting to me about, about trying to think about indigenous oppression, but the Vathic um, are very much like sort of European Roman esque um, in that sense. Um, But no, I think um, in terms of using indigenous oppression in, in Morocco as a template for, for thinking about empire and thinking about colonialism in books. I don't think so. Morocco doesn't really get a lot of, outside of being as a sort of, a sort of like exotic proto fantasy historical backdrop, it doesn't really get a lot of play in fantasy. Hmm. Um, and I'm not really terribly sure if I'm grateful for that or annoyed by it. Um, hmm. Just because like 
part of the thing, part of the struggle of the research and part of the privilege that I had is that I can speak Arabic and I do also have access to academic resources because I'm at a university. And just like looking at the resources that I looked at, they're really expensive and really inaccessible to the average person. And so like, I think that that is a huge roadblock. And like most people, I tell people at like book signings and stuff like that, if you want to write about a niche subject where the material is just too expensive for you, like if you email a scholar, they are so happy to help you. They're like, oh my God, someone cares about this niche topic that I've been talking about for 20 years. Um, But a lot of people just don't because they just think of it as like this space where it's difficult to have access to. And then universities don't really make alumni access really transparent um, in terms of the databases and stuff like that. So there's just a lot of roadblocks to being able to do good research on these things that are generally thought of as specialty topics. Like most books on the history of conquest in North Africa or the literary history of North Africa and Muslim Iberia are just like, they're just so difficult to get a hold of. And a lot of them are out of print or a lot of them are only sold in hardcover and the eBooks are like $200. Like there are all of these sort of institutional barriers to being able to get information if you're a person who's existing outside of academia that I was lucky not to have in my path just because I was a grad student at the time. Mm -hmm. So I see in your bio and if it's correct that you have an interest in Arabic poetry and the cosmos yeah. And so how much of that, it sounds like a fair amount did, but uh, can you elaborate more on how much of that made its way into the series? Yeah. So poetry is like a pretty big cornerstone in terms of the world building, um, just simply because Arabic speaking spaces in the Middle Ages um, and Arabic literature in general um its foundation as poetry, not prose. And so there are like hundreds of genres of poetry. And I, when I was world building the world for Mirage, I was like, okay, if I'm going to make this Moroccan inspired, then I have to also think about the literary scene, right? Um, They can't be reading novels, you know, um, because the novel evolved in the 19th century in Europe under very, very specific cultural conditions, which were not present in the rest of the world, um, or at least not present in the way that we think of them. Um, And so for Arabs or for Arabic-speaking countries, rather, um, the novel only comes in after colonialism, right? Before then, and and really until now, poetry is the preferred mode. It is the mode of high art. Um, and so I I thought a lot about, like, Amani is someone who is desperate to have, like, a real connection to her culture pre-conquest. And one of the ways that she does that is through poetry, which is something that is, like, being actively suppressed. Um, right. Her, her brother in the opening chapters, her brother gives her like contraband poetry that she keeps with her and hides because she knows if, she, if it's discovered, it will be destroyed. Um, and it, I, also for me was, especially in the first book, um, an interesting way to bring in like women just because oftentimes because I teach um, Arabian Nights to my students sometimes and it's always like they always come with these preconceived notions about like how women were treated and what their rights were in like the nebulous Middle East in the Middle Ages or whatever with no actual knowledge of like their rights or their presence in history or how they're recorded in the archive and so it was for me it's like a great opening point to have like this these like really amazing uh women poets who are operating in the Middle Ages who are audacious and saucy and like totally and completely unafraid um, to have them embedded as a sort of guide mark or 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 rubric for the sort of personhood that Amani could could embody um, as she as she moved through the story. Um, and so they became they became really, really important. And 
I am a like I think for a lot of English language readers, like poetry is just not. It's really something that like our eyes glaze over. Like it's something that we had to do in high school <laughs> that we had to read in high school and in, in like. Um, high school English, but it's not really like, we don't think of it as like engaging or entertainment. And so I was really conscious of that too, when I was selecting the poetry and thinking about like, okay, you have to select poetry that the scene won't make sense without it. Like if a reader skips over the lines of poetry that are, that are recited, they have to go back to understand what's actually happening in the scene. And so that was really fun and a really interesting challenge to make sure that they were as deeply embedded in the emotional landscape of the characters and the scene as possible. Mm-hmm. How much is uh, does religion make its way into the novels? Is there sort of any Islamic elements or Moroccan uh, approach to Islam in the books? Um, so there is religion, but I was actually really conscious of like not putting Islam in the novel just because um, it's really interesting because I get readers who are like, oh, they're all Muslim. And I'm like, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> like they literally cannot be because the conditions under which Islam gets formed and on our planet don't exist out there. Um, but it was really important for, for the characters, for, for me to have the characters have a faith tradition simply because like when you're, I think that like authentic real world building includes building and in faith traditions into it and not having a faith tradition means that you're like a bad fantasist and a bad world builder. Cause you can't imagine a culture in which like at some point in their evolution, they tried to explain the world around them and they do that through faith. Mm. Um, through through ways of like literalizing events or meta or, or creating metaphors or explanations for why things happen right like that's why faith exists we're trying to make sense of the universe and the world around us in a way um when it does when it like can't make sense to us right um and so i think a lot of people assume because i'm muslim and because the characters uh uh are sort of like space moroccans that they that they have to be muslim but i like really you know, their prophet is a woman. We don't have female prophets in Islam, you know, and their goddess calls something else. And it's really just like that she has a faith tradition and that that's a really important like community and cultural touchstone for her. And for most, for many people under occupation, religion becomes a way in which they can form solidarity with other people who are under conquest. And so it becomes a through line through which like a rebellion can form and revolution can happen um, and solidarity can happen. And it's less about sort of the representational aspects of Islam or anything like that. And so, like, even with the scripture that happens in it, it's poetic because the mode of literature for them is poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the the sort of the shape that it takes and the form that it takes. Okay. So um, we've touched on some of the things that uh, inspire you, some of the things you enjoy. Are there other, can you talk about other books, music, TV, any anything like that, that... Uh, to just generally inspire your um, creative mind? Yeah, um, I love science fiction. That comes as no surprise to anybody, I think. Um, I love any science fiction that has like a political intrigue aspect to it, so I really loved watching. I just I just binged The Expanse over Christmas break. That was really fun. Okay. Um, I really, really love um, sci-fi, like the channels, really campy sci-fi dramas. <laughs> so, like, I... Yeah, I really love Killjoys. Like, that just finished, and I... That was, like one of the best sci-fi experiences I've ever had. Let's see. I read a lot of fantasy. I'm a huge Tolkien fan, which I think a lot of surprises a lot of people. Um, But I just think he's just, he's such a fabulous, he's such a fabulous world builder. And I think a lot of people like misread the Silmarillion and the point of the Silmarillion. Mm -hmm. And so they come away 
like the entire genre is sort of founded around this idea that like there has to be a quest for a magical item. And I think that Tolkien was more interested in like intergenerational trauma and grief. Mm -hmm. Um, and those things get completely like put to the side. Interesting. And in terms of music, I just, I listen to a lot of like lo-fi chill hip beats Mm -hmm. (laughs) to study and read. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this kind of, this question kind of uh, expands on, on the one I just asked, which is how about stuff outside of sort of genre entertainment? And, you know, you have the, the poetry that you're interested in, other stuff in general that just inspires you. Um, I like reading science articles about space. That's always really fun. Mm-hmm. Um, I love reading comics. Um, it's always interesting to sort of think about how narrative has to transform into the visual medium. And so that's always really fun. I really just kind of stay in my wheelhouse. Like, I don't read a lot of contemporary. The nonfiction, I read a lot of, like, history nonfiction mm-hmm. that gets, um, like, I always... I have like a a running word document where like any interesting historical moments I like write down as a potential like plot egg that can launch something. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, that's basically it. I don't do a lot. (laughs) Well, you see, (laughs) I don't want to say you don't. You do a lot, but uh, it's within, like you say, your wheelhouse. Yeah. Is is this, uh, is there a third book slated for the series? No, Court of Lions is the final one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a duology. Okay. Okay. What would you say is the, if the book had a soundtrack, or what would you say the aesthetic of of the two books are? Oh, I listened to a lot of John Williams Star Wars soundtrack hmm. <laughs> when I was when I was writing it, and also um, I had this one song on repeat called Epitaphio, which is um, an Andalusian song. I can't remember the the artist's name or the singer's name. Hmm. I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah, that sounds interesting. So it's by it's by Luis Delgado. And so he takes a lot of like um, Andalusian Arabic poetry and then puts it to music. And so the entire album is really great. But Epitaphio is really wonderful because it's talking about like this one person who has survived all of his friends. So it's an epitaph, basically. Mm. Um, and I listened to that a lot when I was writing Court of Lines. Yeah. Interesting. Is there anything that you consider out of the ordinary as far as completing um, drafts or or your final, your work? No, I think I had a pretty, like, I had a pretty long editorial process um, for a variety of reasons. Um, But in terms of completing it, that was pretty standard. Like, I finished it and sent it off. (laughs) Okay. So between the, the first book and this book, has there been any changes to your, your approach to writing? I've become a lot more confident. Like the first book was very much me um, figuring out what I was capable of doing under contract because it's a completely different environment when you're writing for yourself versus what you're writing under contract. And so for Mirage, I was still figuring out like what I'm capable of, what a reader is going to respond to, what I'm actually good at. And so when I came to Court of Lines, I felt a lot more confident about like what I could do and what I was capable of and a lot more um, interested in challenging myself as a writer. Like Court of Lions has a, a larger cast of characters that has more dynamic relationships. There's more to keep track of. And I really wanted to do that because I wanted the world to feel Amani's world in the first book is very small. Like she knows and talks to like three or four people. And I wanted the reader to have a sense of this much broader world and this much larger chessboard that she was going to be playing on for Court of Lions. And so that was it was really fun to take up that challenge to tell to say, like, this is what I want to do. 
and then to watch myself do it, um, right. even if I struggled during certain parts of it. Right. So as far as the editing, did you, um, did you overwrite and have to cut out a lot or I, no spoilers, obviously, but, um, um I actually underwrote mm-hmm. the first couple of drafts, um, were very like when I had like an editor change halfway through. And so when Kate Sullivan came on, she was like, you just don't have enough. Like, that's the problem. Um, you don't have enough of these relationships. You're not grounding um, these characters in these places and in these relationships well enough. And so I had to write a lot more just to, like, accommodate because, you know, there's only so much space in a book. And if you have a lot of characters, like, you have to make sure that every scene that they're in is, like, is going to stick with the reader. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there was a lot of making sure that, like, the moments in which they occurred were memorable for them so that you could remember these characters when they reappear later on um, and why they're important and so on and so forth. So there was a lot of like sort of doing that. And I'm a, I'm a writer who gets sort of like um, lost in the forest in the trees rather than the forest or however that phrase goes. Mm-hmm. And so there were a lot of things where, where like Kate was like, okay, you don't like, nobody cares about this. Like I'm someone who would totally take a two page diversions to like explain funerary rights to a reader. And Kate would have to be like, nobody cares about this. <laughs> This is not relevant to the plot. <laughs> Get rid of it. Hmm. Yeah. No, I get it. I get it. Yeah. So a bit of a whimsical question, and I sort of can suspect an answer, but uh, when you were younger, was there any power technology or fictional setting you yearned for or to be a part of? I wrote so much Lord of the Rings fan fiction when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah. We- yeah. And I also, I also wrote Star Wars fan fiction. So those were the two. I either wanted to be a Jedi or an Elvish princess, which I feel like is really a stereotypical answer. <laughs> um, but no less true for me. <laughs> so what, uh, so considering, you know, Tolkien, there are many ages, um, was there, were you in the standard age or was there a different age you wanted to be in? When I was a kid, it was just the third age because that was what I knew. And I only read um, The Silmarillion as an adult. And so now I'm like all about the first age. And I'm really pissed that nobody wants to take on the challenge of doing a first age show because it's the most dynamically interesting to me. Mm-hmm. And it's also the one that I think like in terms of how can how interesting and inclusive can it be without leaning into Tolkien's racism? I feel like the first age is the one to do that. Mm-hmm. Um and the second age is really iffy because there's a lot of like, like I feel like that's where Tolkien's like weird race stuff comes mm-hmm. in most clearly. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I love the first age. I love, I think it's, I think it's, and I think Tolkien would agree, even though he's dead, that like the first age is really sort of the like thematic and narrative bedrock of his entire legendarium. And it's really about like grief um, and trauma and like the inesca- inescapability of both. Mm-hmm. Um and I find those really, really, really interesting um, as a writer who's, like, interested in, like, memory and cultural legacy and what the people who come after have to do to deal with that. Yeah, that sounds right. fascinating. I'm going to do some more personal research on, on what you just described, do some more reading on that, if there's much out there. I I think that there is some, but, like, most people just, like, don't want to read The Silmarillion because it's really dense. Hmm. But so for me, sorry, I just gave a, a class on this. I gave a lecture, so I like inoculated a bunch of students with this is how you read the Silmarillion and the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. But for me, like the the reason, like in in modern fantasy, elves are sort of just like 
cutesy, pointy-eared, like, druids. And I think for Tolkien, he has elves because they're immortal, because then they can be these, like, receptacles of memory. So, like, you can't actually escape the past when you're an elf. You're, like, constantly circling back to it. There's not, there's not a way for you to escape trauma, especially if you're part of the wave of the Nalder that made it over to Middle-earth and then get locked in purgatory as a punishment for their rebellion and for their taking part in the kinslings. And so I think that, like, when um, when you approach the Lord of the Rings, having not read the Silmarillion, you're just kind of like, why are all of these elves here? And also, why are they all, like, leaving? Like, why are none of them actually invested in this, like, huge problem? And it's because they all have depression. <laughs> and they're, not, they're, they're all, like, they, they've all survived, like, multiple cataclysmic events. And I think that, like, the, one of the most interesting things about the Lord of the Rings and the way that it gets read is that it gets read as, like, a veneration of medieval... Of like a feudal medieval landscape when it's actually like post-apocalyptic fiction hmm. because they've undergone in the first age Valerian sinks the entire coastline sinks and then in the second age Numenor sinks and there's like a tsunami and so like to me it's really interesting and Peter Jackson really knew this because like the movies are have all of these ruins and you don't have ruins in a society that's like capable of organizing their cultural history and like all of these kingdoms are like totally incapable of doing that because they're grappling with apocalypse and then like the shadow of like a third apocalypse that's about to be upon them um and so i think that that makes all of the the like internal like character motivations and and conflicts much more interesting because you're dealing with a society that's like never been allowed to recover from multiple forms of apocalypse and multiple forms of trauma and then also on top of that like the elvish race those of them that are left are ones that have also never gotten therapy and never been allowed to recover. And they also have the threat of like purgatory hanging over them because they're part of this like ongoing curse that occurs at the first age. Um, and like none of that really gets talked about as being, cause I, because I don't think that that's like the legacy of the Lord of the Rings and fantasy, but it's to me, it's the most interesting aspect of Tolkien's work. Like I don't care about the MacGuffins or whatever. I care about like, when Elrond at the Council of Elrond is like, here is a list of all of the bad things that happened to me, and also my brother died, <laughs> you know? And, that, and, like, it's interesting and telling to me that, like, that also is gets cut out of the movie, because if you don't read the Silmarillion, then, like, you don't actually know what he's talking about, like, when he mentions the hosts of the Valor and, you know, the armies of Valerian, like, you have no idea what that is, because it's also not part of the map anymore, Mm. Um, it's gone. Sorry. I, I literally could talk about this forever. <laughs> uh, so when are you publishing the book on, on this subject? When is that coming out? That um, my I actually question. want to do a podcast, like a, a mini series of like five episodes where I do this and I test drove it with my students and they were really receptive. So yeah. maybe soon, hopefully before the new Lord of the Rings show airs. Oh yeah. 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 Um, though that might be delayed because of all the, um, the production yeah. delays. Yeah. So you have time, which isn't yeah. good. You know, that, that, that gives you too much, uh, leeway there. I'd rather get this out as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah. I'm speaking with Samaya Daoud, author of Court of Lions. You can find more information on her work at samayabooks.com. If you like this podcast so far, please subscribe to it and rate it if you can. Please go to my website, chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com for links to news, videos, new books, and my social media links. You can find the links to my other podcasts and associated book lists 
at historyrabbithole.com. That's rabbit as in the animal, historyrabbithole.com. And now back to the podcast. Were there any other difficulties in finishing the book? You said it was a long editorial, or the second book in the series. Yeah, it was just, um, there was a sort of difference in editorial vision that sort of came to a head. And so it just took a little bit longer because I think uh, the editors that I had, like clearly I'm like a deep fantasy reader and writer. Hmm. And I don't think anyone that was on the editorial team really was that. And so there were a lot of like, well, you don't really need this. And I'd have to be like, I don't know how to explain to you how world building works, but actually like, yes, I do need that. Cause if I get rid of that, then I have to get rid of like six other things hmm. and then there's no book. So it sounds like you were writing high space fantasy and it yeah. kind of got trimmed down a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm super happy with the version that's being released because I think it does what it needs to do very well. Hmm. But I also did that with a different editor who was a fantasy reader Hmm. and who had the same taste that I did. Interesting. So what's your next writing project? Hopefully what I'm currently working on now is a big giant space fantasy that's trying to pull all of the stuff that I said about memory and apocalypse into a narrative form that's fun. Hmm. Um, so we'll see how that goes. Is that planned for young adult or more? No, for adults. I've realized I just, I would really like to go ham with world building. Hmm. Okay. Okay. So, um, so, so I think it's going to be like an adult, an adult space fantasy. Cool. So, um, where can people find you online? You have a website, social media. Yeah. So you can find me on my website, sumayabooks.com on Twitter as Sumaya Dawood. And then on Instagram, Sumaya with three eyes. Okay. And I'll spell your name, um, for listeners, uh, S S O M A I Y A. And last name, D-A-U-D. Yep. That's all the questions I have. Do you have any um, final thoughts or words? Nope. Um, if you were interested and like this conversation, you should definitely read Mirage and pre-order Court of Lions, which is out August 4th, 2020. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thanks so much for having me. I had a really good time. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, Full Contact Nerd, please subscribe. Please also rate Full Contact Nerd and review it if you can. I have many more options to nerd out on sci-fi, fantasy, and horror. You can check out my website, chrisalvarez.com. That's Chris without an H. I have 20 mini-blogs on the site covering sci-fi, fantasy, horror, gaming, writing, mysteries, folklore, mythology, and many more topics. You can find my video playlists and my original videos on YouTube under Chris Alvarez. I cover sci-fi short films and games, fantasy fiction, horror short films and games, video and board game design, and more. You can get interesting news on fiction and fiction studies on my Twitter page, Chris Alvarez FCN. You can find cosplay and convention photos on my Instagram page, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi. You can sign up for my newsletter on new books on my websites chrisalvarez.com or fullcontactnerd.com. Thank you for listening and keep imagining the past, the present, and the future.